Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Lilo and Stitch. His name is Stitch. Two worlds will collide, and paradise will never be the same. All of our dogs are adoptable. Except that one! <laughs> he got the will. And you must now bring him back. Okay. Showtime! Okay. He's indescribable. You sure it's a dog? I think it might be a koala. An evil koala. <gasps> indestructible. Things are going well. Indigestible. Isn't it? And completely irresistible. We have to take him back. What about Ohana? Ohana means family. Family means nobody, nobody gets left behind. Yeah! Walt Disney Pictures presents Lilo and Stitch. If you were thinking they didn't know how to market this, you'd be dead right. Welcome back to the Disney shows. This time we're looking at the directing debut of one Chris Sanders, he of How to Train Your Dragon and The Croods. Though Chris had helped with the storytelling on four of the best in Disney's incredible 90s renaissance, namely Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King and Mulan, this was the first time he'd been given license to put one of his own creations on screen. By the way, before we carry on, hello to Daniel Floyd. Hello. Hello. And my hello. wife, Sharon. <laughs> Hello. Sanders' work on Stitch can't help but feel personal. There are hallmarks that turn up repeatedly in his other work. He even voices the chaotic little blue monster. He did two-hand the direction with his friend Dean Dubois, who worked with him on Mulan and then on How to Train Your Dragon 1, going on to direct How to Train Your Dragon 2. Stay tuned for those. Tonight we're going to disassemble this particularly colourful and brilliantly crafted experiment. Lilo and Stitch is many things, but it begins in deep space and a particularly officious galactic council. Now, I was asking this as we all started watching it. Is this Disney's first cold opening? No, actually, it's definitely not. Because, I mean, even if you just go back to A Little Mermaid, as it gives you the Disney castle, and then you get a little skit on board uh, the ship where they're like, ah, King Triton's in a friendly type mood. And then yeah. uh, it cuts to, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm racking my brains for other ones where I mean, I guess it's unusual, definitely. You get the, the, the little Arabic an, uh, intro in Aladdin. That's true. And, uh, and Beauty and the Beast has the whole kind of storytelling bit before the yeah. title screen. I guess it depends on how, what you define well, a cold open. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, um, for, for your opening musical number, I mean, that's, that's, that's all like, Face it, the the way a Disney film starts is to give us some music and sort of say you're about to watch this. As I recall, didn't Atlantis have nothing? 
It just starts straight away with the Legend of Atlantis and then cuts straight to Milo. I think so. I mean, I think there was a title screen, but Mm. that that was about it. Oh, Great Mouse Detective. Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah, that one starts with uh, the in the toy shop. Just straight in full pelt. Okay, well, definitely not the first uh, cold opening. I think I'm only saying this because it gives you a completely different world to the way you're going to start. And then you cut to Earth. It's kind of like the, the opposite of Thor, isn't it? Where it starts on Earth and then you cut back to, to Asgard. It's like, wow, okay, just so we've, we, you got this, we've grounded it, we've said we're going to come back to Earth, it's going to happen, but now here's the crazy space stuff. There's another way around with this. It's like crazy space stuff and then wonderful uh, hula. It is quite a change in feel and tone, just starting off with the big, yeah, like you said, crazy space stuff and then just kind of like small town Hawaii. Yeah. It's an, at least it's very comfortable and and nice and like it, it's a, Hawaii as a setting is a really fun little pl- original place to be yeah because uh, it it doesn't feel like a downgrade. Also uh, the uh, the Disney logo they've uh, personalized it with so that with the green and the alien uh, styling. I think Disney should do that for every single one of their films. As magical as that thing is, I mean, really, why not give them all personality of their own? Yeah, agreed. Um, as a, LucasArts yeah. thing where the little logo always does something kind of weird depending on what game it's in. Oh, yeah. Like a Star, Star Wars game is suddenly it's wielding that little sparkle thing like a lightsaber against blaster bolts. It's just, I mean, they're all goofy, but still. I can't remember. Did Wally? I mean, I, I remember the trailer like in, when Pixar had uh, a Wally come and sort of like try to, he bumped into the uh, Pixar logo and then it, st- it stopped working and then he had to fix the light bulb. I don't know if that actually happened in the in the film itself, but it was a wonderful, charming moment with the trailer. Either way, it's something that Disney have well within their power to do and should do more. The uh, the wonderful sort of uh, steampunk aesthetic for the one for Atlantis uh, springs to mind as well. Yeah. Anyway, so does anyone know what Stitch was going to start out as before he became a Frankenstein's monster creation of a crazed Russian alien scientist? <laughs> Um, I know he was different, but I can't remember exactly what the original plan was. I think I recall them saying he was going to be a gang member, but I don't know whether that meant he was just like, that was just the type of alien he was and he mm. happened to be in a gang. No, no, you're absolutely right. He was totally a gang member. He was, uh, uh, Jumbo was going to be one of his other two gang member friends. And like, they, they were going to be like robbing the place and destroying things. Um, Let's come out and say it. this film was in production when 9-11 occurred and there were certain changes to the story which sound like they, they, they sat down on 9-12 and said, right, there's a couple of things about this which might put people's backs up and let's just massage this through, uh, not changing it too much, but enough so that it sort of has a different resonance to it than just he's a, a, a guy who willfully causes chaos because it fetches him profit that it's part of his living or that that he's doing it on purpose as opposed to that he is a a a crazy creature built for it that's true i mean there were some sequences obviously that were specifically changed due to the the 9-11 happening the um the original ending was not a spaceship flying through mountains like a pursuit um like a stitch and jamba and everyone gets into jamba's spaceship and they fly through the mountains pursuing gantu uh they'd actually went and hijacked a plane from the local airport and were flying it through the city between buildings and stuff which obviously i think on 9 12 they realized decided okay we need to change this all (laughs) 
Yeah, uh, they said on the um, the commentary that they were basically numb for most of the day on nine eleven and just couldn't just wrapping their heads around it. And it was just later in the day that they thought, right, okay. At one point in the film, our a plane like catches the side of a building and uses and Stitch uses it to ch- turn a corner, and that ain't happening. So. Um, so let's rewrite this one. And they actually yeah. did extremely well because uh, it doesn't feel like this is a film that's been reassembled. But if you w- listen to the commentary, they went to so many test audiences and there were so many instances of, do you like that? How about that? Can we get away with two montages? What about Nani and Lilo? Do you get that? And it really kind of hammers home that they that this has been crafted very, very carefully, but they somehow managed to a- appeal to people without sacrificing the core of it and in fact strengthening the core of it the whole way through absolutely that's that's what test audiences are ideally for it's it's easy to hate on the whole test screening audience thing because it can also go bad if you take the wrong data from it but if you do it right it's immensely valuable especially especially for a really big budget risky venture like an animated feature to rely on test audiences as a way to delineate your course is ridiculous. Then you get a putrefication, um, and, and then you get, uh, you know, also, you should win things by watching, which is ridiculous. You're the <laughs> artist. You have to create this thing and just gauge reactions. Mm. Okay, how many of the kids would like Itchy and Scratchy to deal with real-life problems like the ones you face every day? <laughs> And who would like to see them do just the opposite? Getting into far-out situations involving robots and magic powers. So you want a realistic, down-to-earth show that's completely off the wall and swarming with magic robots. That's right. oh, yeah. Yeah. Good. And also, you should win things by watching. <sighs> Can we put him in more of a hip-hop context? Forget context. He's got to be a surfer. Give me a nice smear of surface. I feel we should rastify them by 10% or so. From what people have said about them in the, the backstage stuff, I think there is value to them in terms of if there's something that you're not sure about mm. or if there's something that, you know, you and the people who specifically have worked on that scene think it's hilarious, but it's not really been gauged outside of your room yet then you need to know if it's going to appeal to a a wider group of people and isn't basically just an in-joke Atlantis was a a perfect example of a kind of film where it seemed like they didn't really do much test screening they were just so close to the project they thought it was going to be an absolutely rip-roaring success and that everyone would love it and then when it came out and it was just eh, we quite like Atlantis they they were unapologetic for it because they made the film they wanted to make but ultimately uh, it didn't feel like at any point along the way they were re-aiming the project Mm. I think a big reason why this film feels relatively uncompromised, even though it did have to obviously go through changes as all films do was mm-hmm. because there uh, Lilo and stitch for most of the production was very hands off from the higher ups. Yeah. Um, so like, cause at this point, Disney animation box office earnings in general had been trending downward for a pretty long time. I, mm-hmm. I guess, arguably since lion King Yeah. and with so many of these big budget features underperforming, uh, Michael Eisner had thought that maybe they should try producing something smaller, uh, kind of like how Walt had made Dumbo on the cheap yeah, after yeah. Pinocchio and Fantasia's significant losses. And I mean, I think that's a great idea. I think it, it wouldn't have to make nearly as much of its, it wouldn't have to earn nearly as much money to make the money back. And the lower risk allowed the studio to 
try some mm-hmm. unusual ideas. And because Chris Sanders like promised to bring in the film on a low budget, he bought himself a whole lot of creative freedom. As far as I can tell, there was no involvement from the higher-ups during the pre-production process at all, which I think is a big reason we've got the film we did in the end. Yeah. I mean, this feels a lot like Disney's Iron Giant in a lot of ways. Actually. Yes. Yes. A, it's a low-budget production at a fairly low point in the studio's history. With, Cost $80 million, made 273 Oh, yeah. And with no executives meddling because it's a kind of a low point and low budget. And it results in a very intimate, personal-feeling, unusual mm-hmm. film. And also features a broken family. It's the kind of film as well that uh, will be a lot of people's favorites, or at least very high up on a lot of people's lists. Like, like it, it, uh, it has a sort of a subtle impact. Like it's great fun while you're watching it, but it's the kind of Disney film that sticks with you. Whereas a lot of uh, ones that we've already done so far, they tend to stick with you because Disney keep trotting them out every few years and saying, "Explore the majesty of Lady and the Tramp." It's like, eh. <laughs> yeah, this one does leave a strong impression, though. You're right. Like, yeah. And I can see a lot of places in the movie where an executive would have detected risk and flinched and forced a change. Because, yeah. mm. I mean, that's just the thing with big budget production generally. You've inevitably wind up with a lot more eyes on the project and mm. a lot more cooks in the kitchen and more opportunities for those distinct, unusual quirks and personal touches to be ironed out. Mm. Less focusing on it being toyetic. But what yeah. you lose as well in that is when you have um, numerous executives and, and people in charge looking at something, you have too many people to say, this doesn't speak to me personally, therefore exactly. I don't think it will speak to a wider audience. Now, there are some themes and some very specific um uh, ideas in this and the the look of it and the setting as well and, and how they've drawn the characters that you could argue arguably say would exclude the vast majority of their target audience they they would appeal on a personal level as in a, i see this and i recognize my circumstance in it to a very narrow audience and to executives normally that screams dear god no don't touch it yeah i mean at times the like the more eyes on the project and the kind of seeing who like how many people the project speaks to can be good i mean it can help to refine some good ideas into better ones and result in a more accessible film, which makes money, which they want. But it it is really easy to lose that intimate personal touch in mm-hmm. the process. And sometimes that message from a film that speaks very strongly to a smaller group of people can still be incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, interestingly, I hadn't thought about this, but uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, the guy we've demonized in previous episodes, he left at the uh, point the Lion King had just made it big. And this is just after a stretch of extremely good wins for Disney. And as soon as the Lion King was out, it was kind of not so much downhill in terms of creativity, but certainly downhill in terms of box office. So as much as we dislike his practices and his treatment of uh, the these wonderful animators, Katzenberg somehow was an element of the uh, uh, chemistry which allowed for huge box office. Yeah, that's the tricky thing about this whole renaissance and then post-renaissance Disney era. There's a lot of things that we get very frustrated with these executives for, mm. even though they were the guys who saw the rena- who made the renaissance happen to begin with. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's difficult to decide how to feel about them. Yeah. 
it, it's also difficult not to fall into post hoc ergo proctor hoc, you know, just because they were there when all this good stuff happened didn't necessarily mean <laughs> it was their methods that got them. Well, the world was absolutely definitely ready for Disney to really step mm. up and, and, and get great absolutely. again. And There's many, many factors that we can't possibly be able to pull apart. It almost feels like if The Lion King had come out in 2003 after, like, I think Madagascar was out around about that time, like, Imagine those two films being pitted against each other for the same audience. Good Lord. Completely different Lion story. But then would Madagascar ever have happened if The Lion King hadn't happened and therefore Disney hadn't had the 90s renaissance? Well, technically, Katzenberg would have been on one team or the other. Do you think he would have got that job if he hadn't already worked at Disney? Yeah, maybe not. Anyway... Speculation over for now. <laughs> In a parallel universe, <laughs> where um, Katzenberg went down a different leg of trousers of time. So Stitch, I think it was actually Roy Disney who pointed out that he kind of like what you find out later at the end that Stitch is the equivalent of like a thirty-year-old gang member, and Roy said, "Ah, oh, that was kind of disappointing. I, I liked him more when I thought he had the brain of a child or an animal, even." And so they stuck with that. They made it that uh, Stitch was. He's a bizarre combination of innocent and very guilty. Um, and that, that's his appeal. He is, uh, he's a toddler, but a really, really smart toddler. And a really, really strong toddler. Yeah. He's Hulk, technically. Mm. But also, like, he's, he's, he's a, um, a Hulk, I suppose a grey Hulk without the mean streak. As in, like, uh, he's smart enough to learn how to drive uh, and steal and drive a car. Um but he doesn't have the self-restraint required to not push Lilo at, at uh, times here and there. Mm. Literally push her. Yeah, knowing how incredibly immensely powerful he is, he doesn't have to push her at all. He is an immensely appealing character for me. Uh, part of his raw frustration throughout the film at not really knowing what he's for, but and then when finding out what he's for, but then not really being able to do that I completely and utterly I just there's an elemental power to the to his frustration just the the uh, there's a specific point when uh, he's pedaled to four corners of the island and Lilo says isn't it great to live on an island with no major cities and that's what makes him lose it and uh, there's m- multiple other times when they're uh, going around the house that he actually puts his own feet in his mouth and rolls around in frustration <laughs> <laughs> and I felt that, and I. Uh, but at the same time, once he gets through all of this horrible, horrible behaviour, that you know, there's there's a genuine fear that there's nothing underneath that, and he has to earn that person. It helps that while he's being incredibly destructive and mostly a jerk most of the time, and really loud and crazy and obnoxious, that he is also so adorable looking mm, mm. that and even sound. when he would be, yeah. And sounding that even when he would be scary or really obnoxious, you just still kind of love him. Yeah. Sanders is just really good at that. Like Lilo and stitch and how to train your dragon could be far worse movies. And the raw appeal of stitch and toothless would probably still carry them. Agreed. Cause mm. they're impossible to not love good on Disney for approaching Sanders with this, because I feel like he kind of just been quietly, been one of Disney's most valuable creative assets through the Renaissance, even mm. if his name wasn't like at the top of the bill at any point, just he has worked on almost all their best stuff. Yeah. And he's a pretty exceptional artist too. Like you can see a lot of his drawings online. He does a lot of uh, sexy pinup style characters and cute creatures and Google him. He's pretty cool. 
but you can totally see his hand in the uh, character designs, though, like those the thicker physical forms, really rounded shapes, curved like real emphasis on curves. It's all very him. first points was going to be about the alien tech um, we've seen so many sci-fi alien cultures and usually they tend to sort of homogenize as they um, uh, just sort of trot out yeah well you know all about this it's it's all just a way to sort of move the plot forwards but there's a personality to this um, alien culture it's almost like they've run the covenant through a Disney filter because uh, there's a lot of what feels like halo uh, in these guys uh, which is interesting because this was in production at around about the same time as Halo, so they couldn't possibly be directly influenced um, until you know the, the final latter stages. But, I recall uh, reading that they were um, basing a lot of the designs on sea creatures, mm, which mm. actually makes sense trying to tie together all this space stuff and Hawaii and the ocean and all this other stuff, kind of aesthetically trying to make it match a little bit and feel like the same film. Hmm. In an earlier deleted scene, the lead counsellor sentences Stitch to, and this is after he was a, uh, no longer a gang member, he's still the same Stitch we know, to life imprisonment on an asteroid. I believe they commute that in the film to you're going to be exiled to a desert planet, which is different. I've always liked exile as a punishment, principally because of what the death penalty does to a society that doles it out. 
uh, but also because of the sense of new beginning and the sort of like, you know, you have to prove yourself as a person if you're going to survive this, that exile equates to. And it can, you know, in, in terms of a story, it can be used to move a person on, you know, violently to the next stage of their existence. And technically, Stitch, all Stitch really does is reorchestrate the destination of his exile. With a very similar result, he's still in a place that is to at least to him and to the his purposes and the things he would want it may as well be deserted yeah it's no nothing for him to destroy no place for him to go he's just stuck in a small town place but this one happens to have a girl and a family in uh, in uh, medieval times and uh, and before that and like the dark ages and before that to the stone age exile used to be like one of the worst punishments the idea being you know you you get sent away from your 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 village or your tribe and there's not, there's not much out there's, – there's no support network out there to keep you alive and you'll pray to all the harshness that the uh, wilderness has. But now, as Sharon, you mentioned that exile doesn't really even work as a, uh, like as a punishment to, today. That we've covered too much of the world. It's too civilized. And um, Stitch ends up in a place where he has, to, he, he has to basically – he finds his own support network and all he really has to do is not be a jerk – which in itself is a tough enough punishment. I was going to say that proves alarmingly <laughs> difficult at times. Yeah. But um, I, I think, though, that doing that is kind of... They've, they've played with the hero's journey in this in mm. a way that I find really appealing. Um, and the, the first step in the hero's journey is obviously that they have to go from their comfortable environment out of their comfort zone, out into the world in order to find the thing that they are supposed to be and the thing that they're supposed to do um and being exiled is a fairly classic method of that happening to apply that to who is essentially the villain of the piece to begin with is a nice little touch a nice little twist how do you plead not Guilty. My experiments are only theoretical and completely within legal boundaries. We believe you actually created something. Created something? Ah, but that would be irresponsible and unethical. I would never, ever make more than one. Monstrosity. Monstrosity! What you see before you is the first of a new species. I call it Experiment 626. He is bulletproof, fireproof, and can think faster than supercomputer. He can see in the dark and move objects 3,000 times his size. His only instinct to destroy everything he touches! <laughs> So it is a monster. Hey, just a little one. It is an affront to nature. It must be destroyed. Calm yourself, Captain Gantu. Perhaps it can be reasoned with. Experiment 626. Give us some sign you understand any of this. Show us that there is something inside you that is good. Oh, naughty! 
I didn't teach him that. Place that idiot scientist under arrest. I prefer to be called even genius. And as for that abomination, it is the flawed product of a deranged mind. It has no place among us. Captain Gantu, take him away. With pleasure. This had an unusual uh, uh, marketing campaign. It, if you remember the uh, the, com- <laughs> the trailers for it, were basically um, like Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid, and The Lion King, um, but with Stitch sort of pasted into the s- scenario and actually causing chaos as he was doing it, and then just like a little snippet at the very end saying, "There's you know an actual film attached to this guy," which confused the hell out of me. I thought it was actually going to be like a, a Kingdom Hearts style romp through previous Disney films. I thought that that would be a fascinating experiment. As it turns out, I was really, really pleased with the end result anyway, but I still, like, that that idea is still percolating in my head. They may one day yet do that. Yeah. But, they may. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's totally achievable for them, and they've still got that stable of actors, many of whom are still alive, and they've also got that uh, stable of great voicer-like actors who can, who can do a... Um, the, the guy who does the uh, voice for Tigger now sadly passed on. Paul Winchell, and also the guy who did the original voice for Winnie the Pooh, Sterling Holloway. But, as it happens, Jim Cummings can do a fantastic Tigger and a fan- <clears throat> And a fantastic Pooh. Oh, bother. Oh, bother. Sorry. The way it works in the film, Earth gets condemned by uh, the Galactic Council as this sort of filthy little backwater planet with nothing of any importance and no strength to it at all. Because we're not um, advanced as a species, we're not spacefaring yet, um, they don't even really give us a second look. But then the, uh, uh, the, the intro sequence suggests that the most, one of the most peaceful islands on the planet, Hawaii, it doesn't necessarily have to be able to defend itself to possess its own strengths. It's got this wonderful, wonderful presentation from the word go as soon as we hit Earth. Um, uh, and this, these watercolor backgrounds. Uh, this is, I mean, background-wise, this is one of the most beautiful in the Disney pantheon. And there's a lot of beauty in there. It's true. It's nice seeing the watercolor backgrounds again. Mm. I, I don't know what the last one they used watercolors for was, but it was very early on. Mm. I think that uh, it was an excellent choice for the setting um, because it gives the whole um, the whole backdrop of the film an incredible softness to it that they wouldn't have got if they'd gone for something that was more vivid mm. for the for the um, the backgrounds. And also, it really lets you concentrate on the foreground, on the characters. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have... Um, the, the, there's no... Uh, there's no sense of jarring between what you're supposed to be focusing on and the things behind it that inevitably will distract you if they are very um, crisp and vivid and um, mm. and kind of leaping out at you. Lilo herself is presented as kind of a, a slightly more innocent, slightly more naive, uh, but slightly more civilized version of Stitch, the earthbound uh, equivalent. Uh, only she has a family, or at least a little broken one, making her enough of a dis- different person for there to be an actual uh, frisson of difference between them when they uh, meet up. And it's a relationship movie. It's, you know, it's a friendship movie, but because she's such an odd 
unusual, wonderful little child. She just sort of settles into the whole, well, this is my dog, and now he's, you know, their relationship changes fairly rapidly, but she takes everything in her stride. She never says to herself, oh, my God, you can talk. Oh, my God, you're doing strange things. At no point does does Lilo consider that what Stitch is doing is strange. No, she accepts him very easily, and I think part of that is is because she's had her family Mm. and she's had that support. Um, I mean, the comparison points between them are such that you can see that if Lilo's family had become broken earlier and she'd never had that initial um, burst of family connection. Um, I mean, it, it hit me when she says, when uh, Nani says towards the very, um, when they're trying to get rid of Stitch, he hasn't been here that long. And she neither says, neither have I. Yeah. She hasn't. She's tiny. You know, she's what, five, six? Mm. Um, and, but because she's had that, obvious nurturing family at a very early stage that's made a lasting impression on her and if she hadn't had that her character might be more like stitch or on the reverse if he'd had nurturing from the word go Mm. that destructive quality to his nature um even though he's been engineered that way might have been channelable because he is like a, a um an angry destructive toddler he kind of needs Lilo to tell him when he's being out of line, and she doesn't. The only people who tell him that are people who treat him like a dog and tell him that he's not being dog-like, to which he, he only acts aggressively and defensively uh, because th- there's no structure to uh, his life at this point. He's kind of like trying to find it himself. Mm. But that is how dogs will behave if yeah. they've been if they get kicked enough and if they get you know if they're, they're treated in a way that makes them fearful for their security. That is how they will behave. Yeah. He is being, ironically, he is being very dog-like at that point, but it's just that it's not the type of dog they want him to behave like. Mm. But Lilo kind of does guide his behaviour, but from a different angle. She doesn't tell him what to do and what not to do. She models for him what to do, and when he does something that hurts her, she tells him yeah. that he's hurt her. It's a, it's a soft and unusual... She's approaching it as a friendship more than, uh, you know, I'm the person who's... Uh, shaping you and disciplining you. She's mm, like, there's you know, no, there's no yeah. power struggle in her relationship with him. You, like you say, he's her friend. She doesn't, although she says later on she owns him. She doesn't really think of him as hers. Yeah. Her that's property. just the red tape for the council. Exactly. Yeah. There's two moments when uh, they they make the point fairly um, blatantly that Lilo is very much like Stitch. Um, she when she attacks the uh, ginger girl, um, the girl comments later, "Ooh, she bit me." which um, is something Stitch, being a bit of a biter, does. But when Nani grabs her and tries to hold her still, she goes, and licks her arm in this this great, big, disgusting, Stitch-like way. And it's telling the kids on uh, on an subconscious level, look, they're very, very similar in a way. Yeah. I think Lilo's my favorite character in the movie, which is saying something with Stitch yeah, present. Yeah, such a great choice here as well. There's some really fantastic support cast as well. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, she's she's a genuinely strange kid, and she has some of the funniest lines in the movie too. But uh, my friends I, need I'd to be to see... punished. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the delivery as well as the lines themselves. Mm. Pudge controls the weather. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, like, I'd I'd love to see what kind of adult she grows into. Oh, God, yeah. I get the feeling she'd be an artist someday. Yeah. Oh, definitely! Like with all those pictures all over the house, without yeah. question. 
The uh, dance at the very beginning, uh, the uh, animators were told, you know, you can give the uh, uh, sort of a, uh, you can interpret most things. This, you have to get absolutely correct. You have to get the exact movements and translate them onto screen because this is a very, it's a sacred thing for the uh, Hawaiians. Um, and uh, they take it very seriously. They have a, a long and rich history. And um, so that was something that they were conveying with this this vibrancy and love and the whole film is soaked with this kind of, please come to Hawaii. You'll love it. And I, I, I would love to go. <laughs> Actually would too. Yeah. You know, a hell of a lot of uh, Disney films, they tend to sort of like choose a particularly exotic location. Cause it's like, Oh, Hey, research trip. But at the same time, <laughs> you know, if, if you had it set in, in the former Soviet Republic, that would, I mean, <laughs> I mean, actually, speaking of, like going to Russia and finding out that kind of the history of that stuff would still be fascinating. So there's there's very few places in the world that you could not interpret uh, in some really brilliant way in animation, because everywhere has history. Even even the, the places that have no history still look fantastic or, or, or breathtaking in some way because that they've never had people there, so they have that untouched haunting quality to them, like Siberia. Thus far, you have been adrift in the sheltered harbor of my patience. But I cannot ignore you being jobless. Do I make myself clear? Perfectly. And next time I see this dog, I expect it to be a model citizen. Capiche? Uh, yes? New job. Model citizen. Good day. Social worker anxiety. Um... (laughs) It's a very contemporary, yet still a very, it's a kind of a classic theme in the way that it's being presented. Like the whole, um, the family being under the, the microscope uh, was, uh, you know, was ramped up in the 90s when the, these uh, nuclear families began to split up left, right and center. And, you know, dads went one way and moms went another and kids were torn between. Um, and that became very much a thing. So the idea of presenting a little broken family was so important for Disney to sort of just put that there. And it's not like they hadn't been doing that before. Andy's family in Toy Story, while you do do sort of get an idea that there is a dad there, it's not really explicitly made plain of. Not enough to really make an impact. Andy and his mum and the sisters there as well. What they were presenting you with there was less than the standard nuclear family. The dynamic better matched emergent families of the 90s you know treasure planet coming up next you got a single mom also played by laurie metcalf uh, dealing with um uh, you know a, a, a single uh, child and the idea of it not being just straightforward mom and dad so originally when nani and lilo were talking um after their initial fight the test audiences weren't entirely sure what was going on, but uh, you know a lot of the kids said that the mom was mean, and then they thought, right, we've really got to make it more plain that these two are sisters. Firstly, it suggests a, an even more unusual relationship than just single mom and kid, and secondly, it immediately gets the adults to understand, and even the children on, on a uh, subliminal level, that Nani's under immense pressure. Mm. Yeah, this is one of the things that actually surprises me most about the film. And one of the things I like most about it, it's that Lilo and Nani's relationship and this whole looming threat of child services is very, like, it's, like you said, it's not, this broken family thing isn't something Disney's never touched before. But in this movie, it feels very real and very, like, you've got siblings screaming at each other. You've got this constant 
threat of an already shattered family being broken up further by child services. You've got Nani's stress. You've got Lilo's unusual behavior occasionally acting out. Like This feels very, almost uncomfortably real in places. And Nani just trying to keep find and keep and hold down a job on a small island with only limited uh, outlets for her, her skills, endlessly applicable to uh, times of financial strife. Oh, yeah. And there's, and you, even if the film doesn't focus on the loss of the parents, you really do feel their absence in the house. Mm. There's a tangible sense of melancholy in there. Just, I mean, the emotional core of this movie is really potent, which I think is why it resonates so strongly with people. Mm, it is. What, I think one of the things they do incredibly well um, in terms of, of keeping that threat of reality very clear but not so intrusive that it, it gets in the way of the core story is by using Nani as a buffer. Um, the, uh, the impact of the, the social worker's presence and this um, authority threatening to split them up further never really touches Lilo until the end because Nani keeps it all away from her, but you do see how it affects Nani. Mm. I like that they also don't make Bubbles, the social worker, a villain. Mm. Mm, they don't make him yeah. just a complete jerk that he's like he's a like entertaining funny like intimidating but sort of lovable guy and you know he really cares about Lilo and Nani's situation and like wants to do the best he is able to do for them while still doing the best thing for both of them if he has to absolutely this is something that struck me about this actually is that there's no out and out villain in this mm, yeah and, and uh, it's uh, the the closest is is Gantu, who is too heavy handed and unprofessional. Mm. But even he is. It, it, there is a redemption for him in the end, and he is allowed to join the family again. Um, and um, Gantu. Yeah. No, he gets court martialed. Yeah, but I mean, when he falls off the plane, Stitch doesn't just let him fall. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, that I was very pleased about the fact that Gantu. Um, survived this one it would have been way too easy to have him fall and be punished for being too heavy-handed and not caring about uh, alien species which by the way he sees you know thousands of different types of creatures every single week for seemingly from his space police job mm. so um to, there's a certain amount of detachment he's going to end up suffering from um, true excellent voice by the way by kevin michael richardson one of my favorites yes. i hope they I hope Disney uses him more in the future because he does have one of the best voices in the business. Totally does. There were many points um, when uh, Cobra was uh, looking around the... Do we call him Cobra or do we call him Bubbles? When Cobra Bubbles was looking around um, Nani and Lilo's house, which was on its way to becoming with Nan and I's flat. Um, <laughs> and there were times when I was thinking, dude's got a point. This looks bad. You know, burning stove... House wrecked, nails in door, child drawing picture of me alone on the fridge. <laughs> you sound like Molly Weasley at this point, don't you? Yeah. Car gone. Car gone. <laughs> and, and so yeah, this looks bad. So when he loses it, because the house has been destroyed, absolutely right. From the outside, Nani may be trying as her hardest, but she doesn't seem like she's got it together enough to hold on to Lilo. And so you know. When Lilo gets threatened with being taken away, there's this inevitability about it, this really sad kind of maybe this was always going to happen. Like may maybe, you no, know, try as you might, sometimes you can't make things work. Yeah. The well, last thing he heard on the phone before seeing the destroyed house was, oh, good, my, my dog, dog found, found the chainsaw. chainsaw. <laughs> <laughs> if 
you if you think about the situation that Nani finds herself in, that would be stressful for a parent to tackle. Mm. A parent who at this point in Lilo's life had had five or six years of practice. Mm. Lilo, by the way, had written on her door, Kapu, which um, I, I checked several times to find the exact context in Hawaiian, but it's something along the lines of do not approach this sacred ground, as in like it's, it's, it's taboo, it must not be touched, it must not be approached. Uh, that's um, she means that meaning her room or indeed her uh, and Leela also means lost which uh, Ben Smith just told me via uh, Twitter thanks Ben so yeah again you got this parallel with Stitch who very specifically cries in the forest that's us before it was rainy and they went for a drive what happened to yours I hear you cry at night do you dream about them? I know that's why you wreck things and push me. Our family's little now, and we don't have many toys. But if you want, you could be a part of it. You could be our baby, and we'd raise you to be good. Ohana means family. Family means nobody gets left behind. But if you want to leave, you can. I'll remember you, though. I remember everyone that leaves. I mean, this whole story is framed around the ugly duckling. It's just it's 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 a modern day reappraisal of the story to give it that much more dimension. Doesn't this feel so much more like a Pixar premise than a Disney one? It really does. This does not feel like a premise for a Disney film, which which is part of why I like it so much. Mm. But yeah, if you compared it to say Bolt, which feels like the premise for a DreamWorks movie. Lost. Yeah, but like this this has all the weird combination of elements of something like up like let's yeah. float a house with balloons to south america Lost. like with old man and a yeah, and a young kid <laughs> like that's that's a weird premise that's a pixar sort of premise and this feels equally strange mm. it it feels odd because and i think it comes down to the execs not really getting involved with it again not that disney personnel would come up with this but that disney bosses would allow it to go through yes it, it is again very much that iron giant feeling of the artists got control and kept control and a clear vision came through without having to mm. make major concessions along the way. Mm. Ah, that mutiny situation I was referring to earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, also, the design on the, specifically the females, has something very unusual about it. Uh, any, anyone? A lot of very thick features. Yep. Very sturdy stocky legs and um that there are no like really willowy characters on the island at all and that's kind of it's also reflected in the uh, the aliens they've all got like sort of squat bodies and fairly short legs except for that uh, the the only willowy one is the um uh counselor chairwoman who uh, turns up at the end with this sort of bobble head on top of a, a stick but oh and pleakly but um yeah you know they've gone for 
stylized, exaggerated versions of actual Hawaiian figures, which is wonderful because if if you stuck them up there with like LA catwalk bodies, it wouldn't or work. Or even the traditional Disney, yeah, princess, Disney princess, yeah, slender wristed um, ankles that look like they'd break if you tried to actually use them, kind mm. of structure. Aurora could not wander onto this island. No, no, yeah, she and, couldn't. And this is very much. Chris Sanders' uh, art style as well, with the thicker, rounded forms. If you look up his uh, his art on Google, it, a lot of it will be sexy pinups versions, but you will a hundred percent see like characters similar to like cute characters similar to Stitch and women designed and drawn with that thicker form, like Nani has. Mm. It's uh, it's it's very him. And they've given them Hawaiian eyes as well, rather than great big sort of round your, your standard Disney eyes. They ha- they don't have Belle's eyes. Or, or aerials. Those are these are unique uh, in Disney films. Uh, I think uh, they did the same with uh, Mulan as well. They didn't. Uh, uh, they, they made uh, concessions to. And this is obviously a fine line to walk because if you uh, over exaggerate that, then you're being racist um, or, or at least racially insensitive. But they're just enough of a, a, a specific set shape, uh, specifically among the Hawaiians, to make that feel like something they share. I think, though, it's part of it is the balance between stylized and caricatured. And yeah. quite often that's not necessarily to do with how the art is drawn. It's to do with how that character is portrayed. Which is ironic if you consider Gerald Scarf in uh, uh, Hercules as a caricature artist. And uh, yet at the same time, the art in Hercules is resplendent of Grecian urns. Mm. It's yeah. got that um, sort of that, the, the shapes to it, the extremely long, slender, but with the, the sort of the, the elongated curve to them. Mm. And the, um, the angular uh, things like elbows and shoulders being very pointy. Yeah. You see any ancient Greeks getting upset? Mm. <laughs> Hi. Oh, how? Wow. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. All of our dogs are adoptable. Except that one! <gasps> what is that thing? A dog, I think. But it was dead this morning. It was dead this morning? When we thought it was dead, it was hit by a truck. I like him. Come here, boy. Wouldn't you like a different dog? We have better dogs, dear. Not better than him. He can talk. Say hello. Dogs can't talk, dear. He did. Does it have to be this dog? Yes, he's good. I can tell. You'll have to think of a name for him. His name is Ditch. Oh, no, that's not a real name. In Iceland. But here it's a good name. Stitch it is. And there's a $2 license fee. I want to buy him. He's all yours. So, question, what does Lilo see in Stitch? Because when she, she picks up the dog and immediately likes him. Uh, but, you know, it, it, there has to be a sort of a beginning and a medium. And then the end, I suppose, would be when she says, you can go if you want, but I'll remember you. Um, it's not her casting him out. It's her giving him the, the freedom that he, uh, he might need at that stage. Uh, but so, so what does Lilo see in Stitch? 
I think she sees certainly a, a is soulmate too corny a term to use? Kindred um, spirit. Kindred spirit. Yeah, she. I think identifies in him the feeling of being lost that she feels. Lost. Um, that ultimately she recognises that she has Nani as an anchor, uh, and to an extent David, mm. and Stitch has no one. And she's looking at this in terms of, uh, I have a little family love to share, and if you come with me, you can share it too. What she has, she wants to give away. She wants to share it. Um, so I think that there's that. She sees somebody who would be receptive to that potentially because they don't have it. Yeah. And she does seem to have a very unique lens through which she perceives the world. So a lot of it very heavily laced with imagination. And uh, I, I just kind of got the impression that something about Stitch just kind of speaks to her. Mm. They're maybe both, it's maybe it's seeing a little bit of herself in it, in him. They're both artistic, actually. Now that you mention it, when she she draws, this is your uh, a badness level. It's a mm. way of uh, <laughs> indicating to him, with uh, in a very personal way. You know, we need to just sort of lower this, not in a way that that uh, makes him feel that he is bad, but that there is bad in him that you need to, uh, that, that, that can be Which, diminished. We just need to bring that on the down low yeah. a bit. But you're right, they are both very visual people because um, uh, Stitch hasn't been able to crystallise how he feels mm. until he sees the pictures in the Ugly Duckling book. And he can't really express his frustration until he creates San Francisco and destroys, destroys it. it. Now, the destruction um, itself is a catharsis. That can actually be a, a, almost a, an act equating with the creation of art. Mm. Uh, so if you create something and then destroy it, that in itself is creative. Mm, indeed. Um, but Lilo also is very visual. She does lots of drawings. She takes lots of photographs. Mm. Um, she, she communicates with people in images. This is you. This is your badness level. It's unusually high for someone your size. We have to fix that. Ay, 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 Lilo! Your dog cannot sit at the table. Stitch is troubled. He needs desserts. Oh, you didn't even eat your sweet potato. I thought you liked them. Desserts! <sighs> so yeah, she sees a kindred spirit, but uh, at the same time, um, Lilo's clearly lonely, and he is fun to be around. And also he accepts her in a way that the other kids don't. She also hasn't developed great social skills, mm. generally, which also doubly, triply, quadruply true of Stitch. Yeah. Her way of bonding with the other kids is to tell them about this this repugnant-looking doll with a terrible uh, condition that uh, she's created just for play. It's an unusual move for Disney to create a character who is very out of it, socially speaking. I mean, there's Hercules is affable, but he's clumsy, and that's pretty much the extent of him being outcast. Mulan is too boyish in her nature. Uh, Tarzan just is biologically different and weird and different to the apes, but tries his best to fit in. Um, Lilo, like, genuinely freaks out her friends, or, or the, yeah, the kids who should be her friends. That's the difference, I think, between Lilo and your, your standard, in inverted commas, Disney... Uh, central character hmm. in that they've they've crafted um, a, 
a consistent theme of this person who is out of place in the world that they are in. Mm. Lilo is not out of place. She's home. But everybody else is out of place around her. Everybody that she tries to interact with, Mm. they're not. I mean, I know what you mean about her, uh, you know, going up to them and trying to bond with them by talking about all this gross stuff that you you wouldn't dream of going and talking about with Mm. normal people. But they make no attempt to understand her whatsoever. No, they're very California high school girl for Hawaiians. Well, most of them aren't uh, native Hawaiians. Two of them aren't. There's a blonde one and a uh, um, uh, redhead, both of whom could have some semi-Hawaiian parentage. The other two, jury's out, but they still act very mm. uh, California schoolgirl. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's that clicky thing that she's not in. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think the other part of it as well, uh, that, rela- that kind of relationship, that has to have worked for her at some point. And I think it's with Nani. When she says, I like you better as a sister than a mom. I think they've had a very close, um, unusual, being silly with each other type relationship. Which immediately had to end as soon as that. Exactly. Because Nani's had to take on all this excess responsibility, she's lost that. And she's trying to transpose it onto the other girls and it just doesn't work. So then she tries to transpose it onto Mm. Stitch and it works better. Nani even lapses back into it after she uh, gets fired from the luau. She says that he, her manager was a vampire, but she mm. says it in a very offhand way that suggests that she's been doing that a lot before. Yeah, and the and falling like, I knew it. The idea being that they both they take silliness very seriously. Yeah, like and the uh, the scene where she falls on her outside the bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Gravity's increasing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and uh, they, yeah, actually, technically, with the Wishing Upon a Star, they parody one of the oldest Disney films, the uh, with Pinocchio, when she's like, you know, it's a falling star, it's a falling spaceship, and she dreams that, you know, she wishes to be sent an angel, the equivalent of the Blue Fairy, and it is a Blue Fairy. It's a horrible little chaotic monster <laughs> that mm. immediately gets out cackling and crashes a truck. Good point. Points a gun at a turtle, a frog. <laughs> actually, I think that there are elements of this that were. Um, carried forward into princess and the frog yeah um and actually speaking of which this is one of those few disney films that isn't a broadway musical that wouldn't really feel right as a broadway musical the way lilo feels there's a point when she could sing a song but it perfectly works that she doesn't because she doesn't really externalize that or deal with that those feelings she uh, keeps them inside and doesn't really confront them or deal with them or really understand them until later it actually the closest is um uh, song with the flowers, which Nani sings to to both of them, mm. um, which is uh, Aloha Oi. It's a, it's a it was Tia Korea's favorite uh, song. She was born in Hawaii, so this is absolutely a, a place she should uh, be portraying on film. Listen carefully to the way Nani says, "We have to ah," uh, because when she trails off, she's unable to say words that terrify her. They don't give Best Acting Oscars for work in animation, but they should. Lilo, honey. We have two, huh? Don't worry, you're nice, and someone will give you a job. I would. Aloha. 
And she did a fantastic job of, of uh, sounding like she came from Kowloon Bay in Wayne's World, I might add. That's the nod to the um, Broadway musical, that moment. But they don't say everything on their sleeve. Part of the brilliance of the film is that all of this stuff that needs to be said comes across in what isn't said throughout all the um, arguments and discussions that they have throughout the first two thirds of the film. Mm. I think that's another way in which they make it feel real as mm. well, because mm. I mean, that's something that I, I love it about Disney films and in Disney films, it fits. Yeah. But the fact that people talk their feelings so freely and so readily and so constantly yeah. in Disney films to make it but, clear to the kids, you know, exactly. But, the, but because they don't in this one, it makes it feel much more close to reality um, in which people usually have to be persuaded yeah. to, to talk about how they really feel because mm. the, there'll be something that they feel uncomfortable discussing. The viewpoint is Lilo's. So uh, if the ch- small children are a little bit confused about why Lilo might be taken away, it's all grown-up stuff. And mm. that's going on so that the grown-ups get it. It's very well played. In that, The emotional in that core is, is very intimate in general. And I don't think intimacy lends itself very easily to big, bombastic, Broadway musical style mm, thing. Like, we've true. got a big, huge uh, space aliens and <laughs> big uh, spaceships flying through the mountains, like uh, the climaxes, and it's it's exciting. But the emotional core is very personal and small, and just family and belonging and stuff mm. like that. And, and I mm. and it because it is so grounded and real feeling. I think it is all the stronger in this case. Yeah, it's Princess like and the Frog does manage the balance of those two, by the way. It, it, there, there is the small family feel to it, plus the big Broadway feel. It's a, that's a tough juggling act. Mm. But it, it does, um, as a result, I think it slaloms a little bit in terms of the emotional tone, mm. um, which is possibly part of what pushed some people away. Maybe. And some people are idiots because it's one of the best films ever made. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with the second part, although. You don't agree that some people are idiots. You were saying the same thing three times before breakfast. (laughs) That's not true. One of the things we talk about a hell of a lot on this uh, podcast is the idea of non-normative families. And um, I think a lot of this actually may have been inspired my interest in finding these by Ohana in Lilo and Stitch, you know, because immediately after that, I saw Firefly and didn't get until a few years later, the importance of that family that had formed there. And, uh, you know, obviously, famously, we went through the Fast and Furious series, not seeing how important family was until we got to near the end and went, oh, my God, this is really excellent. And similarly, the Iron Giant, actually, you've got um, a, a small non-normative family starts from the uh, 
uh, remains of an older one. These fantastic little units that can occur without necessarily blood coming between you. Mm. I think I, I, the importance of family being the people that you bring into your uh, that, that small mm. intimate group in the case um, of Lilo and Stitch, the people that you staple into your group. Exactly. The uh, p- photo at the end, Stitch, is, there is a remnant of a burned photo with Stitch on it that has been stapled onto a, a photo of uh, Lilo's family, which still has her parents on it. Mm. Or, if you like, he has been stitched into their family quilt. But the, the idea that, uh, that your family is not just what you start out with, um, it's what you add to that as you go on and what is drawn into this family. It's not just Stitch. It's David, it's Bubbles even is in the photographs at the end. Jumba, um, Jumba and Pleakley, yeah. So the, the, the idea that that family can incorporate and embrace many different people that you've come across in many different ways and there's a a question in there as well that it kind of poses of how do you define family what is ohana who does it extend to yeah and the idea that you get to decide it's not just the people who are forced on you by the fact that you share their dna speaking of pleakley and jumba by the way um these two characters could really have fallen flat You've got, uh, uh, like I say, the alien Russian scientist who's so unusually rendered on screen. It's, it takes a while for you to really get understand the dimensions of his body and the, uh, his unusual mouth and the fact that he's got four eyes in different areas on his head. Um, David Ogden Steers played Cogsworth in uh, Beauty and the Beast and uh, Radcliffe in... Um, Pocahontas, a very dislikable character, and uh, the Archdeacon in uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, a thankless task of a character because no one's going to remember the Archdeacon. Um, but here, he's he had to be funny as well as somewhat threatening. Like there's a threat to Le- to Lilo, obviously a very sort of down to earth one, and there's a uh, a very uh, up in orbit threat to Stitch, who has different problems. And there was a. There was a concern that he was going to be too much like the father figure to him, too much like how, how Victor Frankenstein often ends up as a father figure to the monster, um, which was dissipated by a, a single line of, uh, you're expensive, don't make me shoot you, which is a really great way of sort of distancing Jumba from his creation and, and ensuring that he never really feels direct responsibility for it. And he always seemed to just not necessarily be crazy, but just not possess the mechanism that allows him to see what he's done as anything other than just a, a failed experiment. It was brilliant, but there are these couple of problems with it. I'll get it right sometime. So does that then indicate that he actually has more in common with Stitch than oh, yeah. a simple creator would do? That they, they are related in terms of their personality? Yeah. As far as he's concerned, his creation, uh, you know, uh, was just one of many. And this is just the one that's causing him the most headaches. Mm. Uh, But for Stitch himself, he's very hostile towards Jumbo, and obviously so. But at the same time, he kind of, he teases him as well. I think part part of uh, Stitch's charm is to be able to be joyfully, gleefully, chaotically aggressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's mischievous on a large scale. Yeah. Not just, like, purely murderously destructive. He will redirect rivers and steal everyone's left shoe. (laughs) One um, scene, actually. (laughs) 
uh, one scene that I felt the tiniest bit shortchanged on, and I actually would have liked to see it expanded on, is when um, Stitch asks Jumba for help. Mm-hmm. And Jumba says, okay, and unlocks his handcuffs. Mm. What can I say? Because Very persuasive. That, yeah, but that's a really important turning point for their relationship because I think that's the, that's the point at which, not necessarily that Jumba starts to feel something for Stitch in terms of relating to him, mm. um, but it's the moment that he shows that that's what he's feeling. So I think I would have liked to see a little bit more well, it's a total turnaround for, for Jumba at that point. Up mm. until that stage, he had been sort of playing ball with the red tape and with Pleakley just to get what he wanted to get done in the first place done, which is to destroy his creation and just uh, to... Uh, I think after that, he was probably going to attempt some form of escape bid. Uh, but the idea being that um, he doesn't really care about anyone but himself, really. Mm. Uh, yeah. But then the moment Stitch says something in Alienese, suddenly he has a complete psych turnaround. That's a huge moment. You're absolutely right for Jumbo. Well, he's not. He's not completely uncaring though. Like when Nani confronts him tearfully, he's yeah. not like he's. He understands that she's very upset, and she's very delicately saying, "I'm sorry. We're just here for him." Like, it's I, almost like what? it's been a long time since he had to care for anyone but himself. But he has in the past. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. These are mechanisms which for him are rusty, rusty, but Mm. not non-existent. Mm. In which case, that would possibly aid with the greasing of the wheels once Stitch starts pleading it. Almost like he's been slowly leaning into that anyway. But Mm. we we don't get many... um, clues to that well we don't know why he made all these creations is he also lonely does he want children mm-hmm. why does anyone create anything that's alive mm. david ogden steers in 2018 joined the pantheon of disney voice actors who are no longer with us he's offset against pleakley who is effectively just a great big shrill shrieking bureaucrat there's something oddly affable about Pleakley. He's got kind of a Zoidbergish feel to him. Like, you know, he's an expert on Earth, at least the, the biggest expert that they can find in the Galactic uh, Council, but most of it's been learned through a Viewmaster. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's, he's played by um, uh, Kevin MacDonald, who significantly played the almighty tallest purple in uh, Invader <laughs> Sin. Uh, which will mean Invader Zim will mean very little to most people, but for who people who've heard of it will go, of course, brilliant. Especially animation fans. It's a it's an obscure little magic little egg there. Could you get any shorter? It is bizarre and hilarious. Track it down and watch it. Yeah, there's not a lot of it. You'll get through it fast. Yeah, uh, and Ving Rhames as Cobra Bubbles has to be. Um, uh, commended as well. His character originally wasn't going to be connected with the CIA. Originally, he was just going to be a social worker who was this particularly brawny fellow. Uh, but then uh, Stitch was going to steal his briefcase and inside was going to be um, books on, you know, so you've just left the CIA and want to know what to do with all that extra time to kill. And various other little uh, comedy books that implied that basically having left the CIA, he wanted to actually reconnect with the human race. You know, when I was first saw this, I thought he was like undercover spying on them in particular because there have been sightings of an alien. Now, obviously, I got the cart before the horse because he turns up before Stitch does. But there, it felt very kind of men in black because of uh, the way he was positioned. 
And so when it came out at the end, it was like, well, that feels absolutely perfectly natural. He is actually, you know, it says the CIA, but it feels like he was actually working with MIB. Just the idea that the fact that he dealt with aliens, making this a secret MIB film, and that's how you do an MIB film. You don't directly try to uh, replicate the original Men in Black. You just put that premise in a wider story. There are a lot of mysterious, enigmatic elements to him, even ones that don't 100% line up with also a CIA guy. Like, I can't imagine that most, that the CIA smiles upon tattooing your name on your knuckles like that's not standard say cobra <laughs> but then like, have you ever killed anyone we're getting off the subject <laughs> like i say incredibly calmly incredibly powerfully delivered there the beauty of that though is that it gives him this brilliantly rich backstory mm. that only ever has to be hinted at and um, it kind of, if you if you trace it backwards, to be um, a, a a good social worker, you need a level of experience with people that you don't always get simply from having trained as a social worker. A background in the CIA would give him a wide range of experience that he could bring to that particular career path. Being a member of the CIA might take skills that they can't necessarily give you at the academy. The background in wherever it was he got his name tattooed on his knuckles, however, might do. Mm. He yeah. was looking for more meaning in life, mm. which, interestingly, he, uh, he witnessed alien existence and then became more interested in Earth. Interesting. Yeah. Tia Career again, needs to be complimented as Nani. She, she basically has a thankless task for the kids for a lot of the movie because she seems to nag Lilo a lot. And she's, she's, you know, the kids are all sort of like, yeah, let Lilo have her fun. Why, you know, why aren't you looking after her and doing your mum job better? And obviously the parents are like, you poor kid, but Jesus, you are, you're really out of your depth here. But she has to really sell the fear once it starts really seeming like Lilo might get taken away. And it's so powerful the way she comes across. Uh, but in a way that, that, that Lila was a little kid and that, that again this is sort of a combination of N- Nani the character and uh, Tia as the uh, the voice the bit where she picks up Lilo and like sort of bundles her up in her arm and sort of takes her away as as um, Jason Scott Lee says you know I thought they were really going to make it then you came along she seems at once very very young and very very old if mm. you get what I mean like she's yeah. too young for this job but she's too old to be as young as she is if that makes any sense <laughs> She's too, part of it as well is she's too old for them to be looking at rehousing them both with foster parents. Yeah, that's it. In normal situations where siblings have lost parents, that's what they'd be looking to do, keep them together. Yeah. Um, But Nani is obviously an adult. She's capable of looking after herself. Her life would actually be a lot easier from one perspective, if Lilo was taken away from her. In fact, I think Pleakley says it directly. Hmm. What was it? Um, Look on the bright side, at least you won't have to yell at anyone anymore. Yeah. Um, And technically, Nani could have been the kind of person who who felt that Lilo was a burden and that uh, the responsibility that she was having to bear was not fair and that really, although she was you know, grinding away at looking after her out of duty, having her taken away might actually be a sense of relief. You never get that from her. Never. Not once. Want to listen to the king? 
You look like an Elvis fan. You can shake an apple off an apple tree. Shake a shake a sugar, but you'll never shake me. No serio. I'm gonna stick like glue. Stick because I'm stuck on you. There's a specific reason why they chose Elvis. It wasn't uh, part of the original um, script treatment, but uh, they they wanted a quirky kind of artist who had the kind of uh, idiosyncrasies that uh, Lilo herself has. And uh, so they went with that, and there's you know there's a lot of his different uh, songs within the soundtrack, and then a couple of covers at the end. It's unusual for a little girl to like a um, a singer from the fifties and sixties. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. Lara likes the Beatles, that's why Sharon's love. <laughs> um, there's there's enough like little like she doesn't just like Elvis. That there's um yeah he's he's clearly her favorite artist, and she's got like you know. A uh, little, a tiny little Elvis costume that she can dress Stitch up as. Uh, it, it matches her mood. There's always a song that uh, that you know, whatever mood she's feeling, and there's something little uh, a fit with that, which is great for a, you know a kid who feels things very broadly. He was a very kind of uh, you know he wore everything on his sleeve kind of singer. Um, and also, I'd forgotten about more art that she uh, um, produces. Her photographs of. Oh, well, fat people. She she sees what society would deem to be, you know, uh, unacceptably fat people as beautiful, and she photographs them and keeps those photographs to uh, to admire. And uh, you know, this is her um, lens on the world. And yeah, she she sees the oddballs in 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 ways that she sees the less standard as more intriguing. Until you said that, though, it never occurred to me that that's what she was doing. Mm-hmm. What are, The only thing I saw in it was that she was photographing tourists who traditionally would be photographing the islanders. Yeah. And that she was flipping that lens around. She should be the object of, of um, objectification. What a dreadful sentence. Brilliant. Um, <laughs> one, one, one again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. She should be who the tourists are looking at and objectifying and taking photographs of to show everybody back home. And she's turning that around. Um, And I think that, again, yes, it it speaks of this artist's eye that she's got, that she's looking at everything around her. And it's the it's the things that are unusual and the people who stand out um, and the, you know, overweight, sunburned guy in his sandals and his empty mint ice cream cone um, is something that stands out amongst the the people that she sees every day. And, um, you know, her doll is unusual Mm. and doesn't look like everybody else's doll. And her dog is unusual and doesn't look like everybody else's dog. Mm. Um, So, but these are all things that to her, that's normal. That's her standard. Um, So she looks for the things that that catch her eye and it's the unusual usual that as you say she finds beautiful yeah which is a very appealing quality for a um i mean a lot of children have that quality to be honest but they don't always uh find a way to communicate it to adults 
It's not often nurtured either. No, no. Normally it's it's kind of, well, normally. Um, uh, it's emphasised to them that they should be embracing the things that are the same as everybody else. Yeah. I really like, I, I don't know how to pronounce her name properly, Davy? Davy Chase. Davy, Davy, Davy Chase. I, I really love her perform like her kid performances like the same year she was lilo chihiro. and also chihiro yeah. in spirited away and just like lovely performances in both of them yeah absolutely spirited away again probably stay tuned on that one that's absolutely breathtaking my favorite ghibli film Whew. um and david chase was also rosie darko in uh, the original donnie darko excellent oh. live action performance yeah um the finale. I mean, we can just jump over the action sequence. Hold on. It... No, she wasn't. She was Samantha Darko. Rosie was his mother. You're absolutely right. Let me go back. S. Darko, of course. The the shitty. Not was that really, her really, as well? That was also her. Let's yeah. not mention it though. No, no, no. That's, that's fine. She was also. You're going to have to say, was she really Dan? Again, with the same level of uh, surprise. She was also Samantha Darko, uh, Donnie Darko's little sister. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't the same level of surprise before it was a six really from the first sentence. that was a four <laughs> get out of here <laughs> god you never oh. okay right elvis presley was a model citizen i've compiled a list of his traits for you to practice number one is dancing you look like an angel walk like an angel Talk like an angel, but I got wise. You're the devil in disguise. Oh, yes, you are the devil in disguise. The finale. I mean, we could probably jump over the um, uh, action sequence because it's the it's the usual. Again, it feels like Pixar that there's a great big zooming action chase sequence. It's good stuff because ultimately it's Stitch deciding to be a nice uh, a nice creature and actually go after what he cares about, and because it's the right thing to do because he got her into that situation and being responsible and to get other people to help him. But the question: Who are you? which is asked with genuine curiosity by the chairwoman at the end when she's got him in irons and he's not struggling and he's not being abusive he doesn't respond with anything about him directly his exact response is this is my family I found it all on my own it's little and broken but still good yeah still good Stitch defines himself by this new family because he had no other way to define himself before. As far as he's concerned, they accept him and that's good enough for him. That's just a wonderful moment. The idea being that he can find out who he is in future with this family. It's not about, I will find my way, I can go the distance. It's not about, you know, Stitch is now suddenly a hero. He just found a place, a people that he can belong with. Which, again, is a very real way of looking at how 
you learn who you are. Mm. When you're when you're a child, when you're a very very young child, and you're learning to define the world, you perceive who you are and start differentiating that initially by working out who you're not. And that's based on the people around you. Mm. Which at that age and at that level of, of uh, development, nine times out of ten will be your immediate family. Yeah. And this is the first time Stitch has had an immediate family and been able to, to make that definition of himself. I also love how the um, Galactic Federation or whatever they call the Galactic Council, the, the uh, emotional side of things is great and the, she's swayed by it, but it's not enough to get him out of the irons. It takes Lilo bringing the red tape to actually um, to, to get Stitch out of it. You know, she want, the councilwoman clearly wanted to let him go on the strength of that, but they respond to numbers. They respond to legality and documents. And, you know, Lilo, for some reason, seems to have an awareness of the central bureaucracy. And so she, uh, she's got her um, contract all, you know, ready with her with the $2. Uh, so it's a really great way of saying, you know, that, that even if you don't get the whole emotional side of things or if it doesn't necessarily appeal to you, uh, legally speaking, he's her property. So I guess we're done here, which is a really great way of ending the movie for everyone's being satisfied. <laughs> Can Stitch say goodbye? Yes. Thank you. Who are you? This is my family. I found it all on my own. It's little and broken, but still good. Yeah, still good. Does he really have to go? You know as well as I that our laws are absolute. I cannot change what the council has decided. Lilo, didn't you buy that thing at the shelter? Hey! Three days ago, I bought a stitch at the shelter. I paid two dollars for him. See this now? I own him. If you take them, you're stealing. Aliens are all about rules. You look familiar. CIA, Roswell, 1973. Ah, yes. You had hair then. Take note of this. This creature has been sentenced to life in exile. A sentence that shall be henceforth served out here. On Earth. And as caretaker of the alien life form Stitch, this family is now under the official protection of the United Galactic Federation. We'll be checking in now and then. I was afraid you were going to say that. This won't be easy to explain back at headquarters. I know what you mean. Don't let those two get on my ship. CIA? Former. Save the planet once, 
convinced an alien race that mosquitoes were an endangered species. Now, about your house. Um, but in all seriousness, I can't think of a person who has ever said, I don't like Lilo and Stitch. I can't think of one. It's like the Shawshank Redemption. you got people who haven't seen it yet and people who love it. <laughs> yeah, I've never met somebody who didn't like it. Oh, uh, people who don't like it, don't tell me. Don't want to know. I want to keep this. <laughs> I want to keep this not knowing uh, because, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to know you don't like it. <laughs> Let's cut that out. That sounds way too aggressive. <laughs> I don't want to know you, buddy. Anything there's, else about this film? There's one other thing, actually, that I wanted to mention, um, and that's, again, to do with things this does that are different to what Disney usually puts out. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the central idea of how you achieve what it is you want in your life, um. They go from, all you have to do is wish on a star. All you have to do is dream. Um, okay, you can wish on a star, but you've also got to work and put effort in. And what Nani says in this is sometimes you do everything you can. You do everything right. You, do, you try your absolute hardest, and it just doesn't work out. And that is very unusual for a Disney film. Mm. Because that is life. Sometimes... It doesn't. You can tick all the boxes. You can do everything the way they want you to do. You can put your heart and soul and every scrap of willpower that you've got into something. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. And it's good to have films that actually do um, suggest that. I mean, we uh, one film, I'm not sure if it's by the time you hear this, whether we would have put it out in any form, but we did Mrs. Doubtfire, and there's a... Uh, whatever you think of the film, the fact that they don't end up getting back together at the end is actually refreshingly apt for the 90s. That, you know, you can dress up like an old lady and hoodwink your entire family, but that's not necessarily going to bring back together two people when it doesn't work. Mm, yeah. And it's not with a sense of bitterness either. It's just with them accepting that like, it's, yeah. it's sad, but sometimes that's how things are and we just kind of have to cope with it. Hmm. We never did put out that Mrs. Doubtfire show. We recorded it, and then almost immediately afterwards, Robin Williams died. And what we said didn't really add much to what We Hate Movies already did, again, before Robin Williams died. So we're sitting on it. It's like the day the clown cried. I'm not sure anyone's ever going to hear it. Oh, props to uh, Jason Scott Lee in this is uh, David. Um, he was a, a lovely, softly spoken, understated male support. He's there to cushion the fall for uh, Nani and uh, just basically be a nice guy. Mm. Well, he's her friend. I mean, that's that's something that comes across overwhelmingly about their relationship. He's although he does um, ask her out, or at least tries to once or twice and, and kind of makes a joke about her dating him. If things go right, Mm. mostly what he does is just be there for her. Yeah. He doesn't try and muscle in and, and, um, you know, take over the way they're, they're doing things. He doesn't seem to think that he knows best. He doesn't, um, dominate her every waking moment. He's just, he's there when she needs him. 
and he fades into the background when she has more important mm. things to deal with. And when things start to fall apart, he could have unloaded on Stitch and screamed at him, and how dare you come in and rip this family apart. But he just says it kind of sadly and matter-of-factly mm. rather yeah. than um, going off on more. Because it's, it's not really his business to start yelling and screaming, mm. but he's very kind of matter-of-fact, which is all it really takes for Stitch to start breaking inside. Yeah. Thinking, I, I've, I really have messed something up here. I don't yeah. really understand what it is, but yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a very sweet, very compassionate guy, and also he is cut, which doesn't hurt. He's pretty cut. <laughs> and he's got fire-breathing skills, which help. Um, well, yeah, if, if ever you need to burn your house down. <laughs> <laughs> He's your man. <laughs> He's your man. Um, it's also really nice to, to moving forwards that uh, that Stitch's story is basically also Rocket Raccoon's story, who also finds his own oddball family and a sense of acceptance from a rootless existence of, of uh, bewilderment, chaos, and feeling like he's been put together from scraps. I'm a bunch of scraps in a cave! I wish I was never artificially created in a lab. <laughs> <laughs> speaks from affairs he knows nothing about. That is true. He has no respect. That is also true. Hold on, on. Keep calling me vermin, tough guy. You just want to laugh at me like everyone else. Rocket, you're drunk, all right? No one's laughing at you. He thinks I'm some stupid thing. He does. Well, I didn't ask to get made. I didn't ask to be torn apart and put back together over and over and turned into some... Some little monster. Rocket, no one's calling you a monster. He called me vermin. She called me rodent. Let's see if you can laugh after five or six good shots. No, 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 no. Four billion units. Rocket, come on, man. Hey, suck it up for one more lousy night and you're rich. Fine. But I can't promise when all this is over, I'm not going to kill every last one of you jerks. See, that's exactly why none of you have any friends. Five seconds after you meet somebody, you're already trying to kill them. It would be a while before, it would be many years, I think, before another Disney feature this good came out. Prince and the Frog. Yeah. Yep, many, many years. 2009, seven years. It's a lot of films in between now and then. Yep. Interesting that after all that time, though, they still managed to carry through a lot of the the essence of Lilo and Stitch into Princess and the Frog. Yeah. I'm almost surprised this one was a financial success. Mm. It's, it, it seems like it's it so should. good and weird. It seems like it would have it would be a forgotten gem. Yeah. But but yeah, no, it earned like 270 million off of that 80 million budget. I mean, it's not it's not a Lion King hit, but it I mean, respectable. Yeah. They, ultimately, there's a lot of um, uh, pulling power in how cute and weird Stitch is. In that, like the little little girls go "oh" and little boys go "yeah," because he's causing chaos. He's actually a really great combination. And you know, parents basically uh, come in because it looks like—I mean, in all seriousness, it looks like an unusual Disney film, but colourful enough that it might be enjoyable. It's enough to snare a modest audience, not enough to, to get Frozen numbers, but a modest audience. Yeah, I think that ad campaign must have worked. I remember. I, I remember being confused as well when I first saw it. Like I wasn't sure what to expect. I too thought it was going to be this weird Kingdom Hearts esque thing where <laughs> Stitch just goes around wrecking all the Disney films. But I, I never remember. Like I can't remember another time I was so curious about a film in my life after yeah. than after seeing that trailer. 
doing trailers where nothing of the film really occurs within the trailer is a lost art and it's only really been attempted about a dozen times uh, in a memorable fashion jurassic park had one toys had one oh godzilla which godzilla the ronald emmerich one the one that stamps on the t-rex yes better trailer than the actual film And we can't walk out because we love our patrons too much, baby. Because School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters. And everybody who pays $3 a month gets every episode of School of Movies two days early. So if you're seeing people talking about it on Twitter, you can get in on that action early too. And our $15 tier get named support credits. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Abel Savage, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And we will be back next week with Treasure Planet.
Hey, my daughter, hey. 